The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Dorothy Andrusiak. Dorothy Andrusiak is a first officer on the Twin Otter and flies with Air Inuit. Dorothy became interested in aeronautics at a young age after traveling and seeing air shows. Her interest continued when she was in the Army Cadets and later decided to make flying her career. But before committing to aviation, Dorothy studied jazz voice at Vanier College, and music remains a large part of her life. Today, Dorothy spends most of her time in Nunavik, Canada. I truly cannot be more excited to have her joining me. Welcome, Dorothy. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. I am so glad that you were able to find the time for us. I know you have such a busy schedule, so we will jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Well, it started very early on when I was uh, little. I traveled a lot with my father and he took me to air shows. And then um, when I got a bit older, I was actually in Army Cadets. And as much as I loved Army Cadets, Whenever we had overlapping events with the air cadets, I had this feeling of envy in me because they got to start their licenses at a very young age. And then when they got older, they got to put that into practice and I really wanted to have what they had. But I was never really in army cadets long enough to even make that switch over. And when I was nearing the end of high school, I still wanted to be a pilot and it didn't happen then either. <laughs> so I uh, studied music for a bit and after that, I still wanted to be a pilot. So I was lucky enough to be accepted into the Sparrow program. And uh, now I work for Inuit. And as someone that was a former air cadet, I can attest that, yeah, we are way cooler than the army cadet. No wonder <laughs> you were envious. So what was that moment for you sort of always, I guess, knowing that, oh, I want to be a pilot. I want to get my license. Do you remember that initial moment or was it just something you always, you always knew? You know, I say I wanted to be a pilot, but there was um, there was a want in me that I couldn't actually put my finger on. I say I wanted to be a pilot now, but what I really wanted was to do something with my body and math. I really loved math my whole life, and I loved traveling, and I loved doing something practical. And when I was a kid, I maybe didn't know that that would be being a pilot. But as I got older, especially around 17, putting those together meant being a pilot for me. And even when I went to study music, it was in the back of my mind that I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. But even at that age, I wasn't able to put my finger on the word pilot. And it wasn't until I really started doing it that I realized that that is exactly where I wanted to be. Now, we mentioned that you came across Air Inuit Sparrow program, and you are a graduate of this program, but how did you first hear about it? I was uh, really lucky. Um, Air Inuit was posting about applying to the Sparrow program on Facebook, and one of my family members sent me that link, and it felt like it fell onto my lap from the sky. And at the time, I wasn't even sure that I had what it took to apply or be accepted, And my mother helped me with my application 
And she was a hundred percent confident that I would get in. And I was only 5% sure that I would get in. <laughs> and I was really hoping. And luckily I heard back from them very soon after that they wanted to have an in-person interview with me, which that on its own was huge. And mm -hmm. A funny story that goes along with this is that at the same time, I applied to be a flight attendant at Air Inuit in the event that I didn't get accepted into the Sparrow program. I really just wanted an in to aviation. And I knew that Melissa Haney, someone who I still look up to, had started out that way. And she was a flight attendant at Air Inuit. And then she worked her way up and then became a pilot and now still is a pilot. So... I applied to both the Sparrow program and being a flight attendant at Air Inuit at the same time. And like I said, I heard back from them very soon and got that interview with them. And very soon after the in-person interview, I heard back from them that they wanted me in the program. And it was completely life-changing for me. No, and I think you touched on a, a, an interesting point, which is that there are pilots that certainly started out their flying career by being a cabin crew member, being a flight attendant. And although I do think of Melissa as well as sort of my primary example of that, there's many different pilots I know that have done that process. It's not a, it's not a direct path, but it's certainly a, a known route to getting from sort of in the cabin into the flight deck. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no shame in climbing a ladder that way to get to where you want to be. I mean, it's like with anything, if you love it, then you're willing to work for it. Mm -hmm. No, and I think even just uh, in sort of all the different aviation support roles that go into a successful flight, how many of the people who are your customer service representatives, who are your uh, air traffic controllers, maybe not as much, but de-icing, ramp crew, uh, cargo, I mean, a lot of them are often in flight training as well. It, aviation and those roles really attract people that want to be in, at least in the plane and oftentimes really in the flight deck. Absolutely. And I can, I can say that most of the people that I work with up north, whether that's cargo or maintenance or any other field of work that's in aviation, a majority of them have either done their pilot training or are in the process of finishing mm -hmm. it and hoping to get a position on the Twin Otter or on another aircraft. Yeah, no, it, it always, I use ramp as my example here, but why would you be out working the ramp when it's minus 35? Unless you really wanted to be a, in the flight deck, like it's, it's not worthwhile to me in that temperature, unless it's really a passion <laughs> to want to be flying. Yeah, absolutely. Now with the Sparrow program, how is it set up when you finally find, okay, yes, I'm accepted into this program. What happens? To be considered uh, to be accepted into the Sparrow program, you have to be Inuk to start off with and a, and a beneficiary of Nunavik. After that, you have to show some sort of promise um, that you have work ethic and that you're willing to, to sit down and study and, and put that time in. Once you're accepted into to the Sparrow program, they send you up north to Kujuak normally. Now, of course, it's different because of COVID, unfortunately, but back in the day, this is how it was. You went up to Kujuak between four and six students with an instructor from a certified school for pilot training. And you stay up north for two to three months and you get your private pilot license started. So you do your P-STAR and you study for your written exam and you do all of your maneuvers and hours for your private license. 
And then you come down south either to Saint-Hubert or Trois-Rivières or sometimes even Cornwall back in the day to do your private pilot flight test. And then you continue on down south with your commercial and your multi-engine and your IFR. But that jump start up north is really, really helpful, not only for the tranquility of being up north and closer to family potentially since we are Inuit, but because there is no competition with other students to find time on a plane or to rent a plane because there's one plane and one instructor and only several students. So you get to fly almost every day and sometimes twice a day. And you really get that hyper-focus on doing your private license up north. Now, as you mentioned, you start with your PPL up north and eventually for the rest of your flight training, you come down south. What are some of the considerations that maybe play into doing initial flight training up north? How does it compare to flying and doing flight training um, in, I guess, southern Quebec? <laughs> it's true. I call uh, down south. Uh, I call Montreal down south because it's relative to up north. But um, I think for anybody to start their private license, it's um, very overwhelming and takes uh, a lot of concentration. When you're up north and you do your training, because there's only one plane and one instructor and one student flying with that instructor at a time, there are no other planes in the sky other than a few Twin Otters or King Airs or Dash 8s coming in to Kuchuak, which is rare and also far from our training zones. Kuchuak is already in the middle of nowhere and we would go even further out in the middle of nowhere to practice our maneuvers. And so that way you have no other traffic to worry about. You have no restrictions to worry about. You're in an uncontrolled zone completely. And you get to just focus on your maneuvers and what your instructor is telling you. There was no white noise, no static, no background conversations, nothing else to focus on but your task. So that's a huge plus for someone starting out. And I realize that that is a benefit that very few have. There's also the weather. The weather up north in the summer is very mild and consistent in the summer. It is not too hot, though there are very many massive mosquitoes. It is relatively cloudless and winds are calm in the summer. If we could, we would continue our commercial and multi and IFR up north as well, but it would be impossible to start a Cessna in those conditions. No, and that makes perfect sense that being able to sort of take best advantage of the weather. And I think, again, that, that tranquility, as you touched on, that you just are able to have this, literally the space, whether it's just sort of the mental space and the physical space to to focus on the task and focus on being a, a, a learner and a student. I know in my, for my PPL, I started at an international airport. And so just to even go out to the practice area, I was calling clearance delivery and ground. And it, I, I got used to that. For me, it was helpful because I had to learn how to manage all the background noise. But yeah, I, could, I see that I completely understand and see the benefit of having none of that and just being able to be you and the sky, the plane and the instructor and be holy in that moment and not listening to the background noise. Absolutely. Though I can say that there are other instances where you might have some moments of some moments of doubt in yourself 
And though they're not caused by background conversations on the radio, I can say that when I did my 150, my 150 nautical mile navigation for my private license, there were certain moments where I felt very, very alone because without that traffic around, without a tower, without anyone else listening, I flew from Kurtuak to Tasuyak and from Tasuyak to Aupoluk and from Aupoluk to Kujuak. And there was nobody reporting weather. There was nobody in the area flying in or out of these places. There was no one I could ask for anything. And I remember landing in Aupoluk, not knowing 100% if the winds were accurate that were given to me prior. And I landed in Aupoluk and there was not a soul, not a ghost, nothing. There was no one anywhere. So as much as there isn't some of the stresses that there are down south doing your private license, there are other stresses up north. No, and as we sort of keep focusing on this, like this tranquility of being on your own, but if you're at sort of this like point Nemo and it's just you, there are challenges. You need to be fully self-reliant. I mean, gosh, like, how would you even know if you have a radio failure if there's no one else to answer you? Yeah, radio silence. Hmm. Now, starting initially with your PPL up north and eventually coming down south to do the rest of your flight training, this is all done in a relatively accelerated time frame. What was it like to approach aviation this way? I didn't even realize I was doing it in an accelerated way at the time because I knew so little about aviation then and now that I had nothing to compare to until I came down south. And once I came down south to continue my training, I was surrounded by people who had very different programs from us who were either going through a SAGEP or a more curriculum-based training that had due dates. And as much as that has its benefits for some people, I really loved doing my training in what they call modulaire because the things that I didn't need as much time on, I could pass through quickly. And the things that I needed more time on, I could take as much time as I wanted because it was on my own schedule. And let me tell you, there were definitely things that required more time that I feel would be rushed and stressful if I had the same due date that other people in different programs had. So working at my own pace was really good for me, but that's also not for everybody, of course. No, and I think one of the points as well is that from the time that you started that program to being, uh, rather starting the program, being interested in aviation, but not necessarily knowing the difference between an aileron and a flap. And then by the end of it being a commercial multi-IFR pilot, just the amount of learning and the focus that has to go into it, it must just sort of, I guess, be a bit of a whirlwind, just trying to make sure that you, even though you were going at your pace, your own pace, that you were able to absorb it all and to actually use that time. Absolutely. And I can also say that the schedule was really comfortable for me, not having weekends or summer breaks. As much as that sounds like torture for some people, that sort of schedule was really comfortable for me because I could get up on a Saturday with good weather and go out for a flight. And the same thing in the summer, I could get courses with my instructor as much as I wanted because they also worked with 
students who were quote modular and it was their job to be available then. So it was nice not to have that, these huge gaps and breaks in my training to keep that consistency and, uh, and to stay fresh and current in, in my knowledge. Now, what advice would you have for someone who's interested in the Sparrow program? For anyone who's in a, and a Nunavik beneficiary listening to this, who's even slightly interested in being a pilot, it will be one of the greatest joys of your life as much as it will be one of the hardest things you ever do. I would say that you have to know what you're signing up for. And part of knowing what you're signing up for is knowing that all of your accomplishments and defeats are your own and that you really have to put the time in outside of school to study and work on the things that, that need a little bit extra attention. I personally love studying, so it wasn't a sacrifice for me, but if studying maybe isn't your forte in everyday life, just buckle up. But I promise that it's worth it. I promise that all those hours of sitting in your apartment and going over your notes and your books and all of that stress is worth it. Now, as you mentioned throughout the show so far that you presently work as a twin otter pilot with Air Inuit, what does any given day look like in this role? <laughs> um, I got to start off by saying that everything I'm about to say, I only do for two weeks at a time because I'm rotational. So I go up north for two weeks. I live there for two weeks. I work really hard for two weeks and then I come down south and I can relax for two weeks. It's important to say that because I don't think anyone would be able to do what we do every day of the year. It would be impossible and draining on our bodies. But a normal day for a twin otter pilot up north is to wake up and to prepare the flight plan for the day. So that includes going over weather and possible no tams in different villages and runway surface conditions and looking at a bunch of different matrices to see if you're even allowed to land there with the snow and the wind and the way the sun is looking at you that day. <laughs> and then um, you go to the airport and if it's winter, you have to prepare the plane by taking off tents and unplugging it and taking a heater out of it and a list of many other things, including fueling the plane, running the plane up. And then your day might be bringing cargo to other villages, or it might be bringing passengers to other villages, or it might be doing a medevac last minute, but it usually includes at least one milk run of the villages, depending on which coast you're on. And when you get back from your potentially 14-hour day, you have to redo everything again and put the plane away, make sure it's warm and cozy for the cold night. And you do the whole thing again the next day. Now, is there a particular aspect of the job you mentioned that you can do, as you said, the milk run, you can do a last minute medevac. Is there a certain facet of mine that you do that really resonates with you? There is certainly a relationship that you build with people through doing medevacs or through bringing passengers from point A to point B. But surprisingly, one of the best parts of my days is loading and unloading the Twin Otter with cargo because that's a relationship that I have with the cargo boys in every village. 
And it sounds funny to say, but these are really hardworking people. I say cargo boys, but they are girls too. <laughs> and uh, we're cold and we're sweaty and we're tired, but we're happy. And we're all working towards the same end goal together. And it's a really happy moment with these people, both in Pavognatuk as much as any other village. The guys who work at co-op or Northern come with, with their trucks to the airport to unload the plane and, and passing that box to someone and having that eye contact with them is extremely rewarding. And knowing their names adds a bit of humanity to every day. Well, especially thinking of it from a cargo perspective, I mean, you are a lifeline of North. You are the way that goods and services reach these Northern communities. And yeah, there's, I guess, although initially you might think medevac with the connection and sort of helping someone who's really in need, being part of the everyday support of communities and the people that are there, of course, that would be just as rewarding. You know, I really do believe this because like, I can say that this is so true to me. And there is proof because one of my captains and I wrote an entire song about this and posted it on YouTube because that's how passionate we are about our relationship with these workers at every station at every village. The song is called Cargo Boys and uh, they're, they're really important to us and they work really hard. Now, you went into this first officer role right out of flight training. You, I would sort of all joke that the, the ink was barely dry on your multi-IFR before you were getting an offer to be a first officer. What was it like to go from such different environments so quickly? You know, put like that, it sounds like it might have been difficult. And granted, going into a ground school for the Twin Otter, I was surrounded by people who had either been instructors, already flown the Twin Otter or another plane, or they had thousands of hours. And I had none of those things, none of that experience, none of those hours. But being fresh for me was surprisingly beneficial because all of the information I had just learned was still fresh in my mind. And I didn't have the chance to pick up any bad habits like cutting corners or complacency or skimming over things because everything was still so new to me. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being really good for me to go directly from my basic pilot training to becoming a first officer on the Twin Otter because I didn't have time to forget anything. So the other way that I've had it, uh, or rather heard it sort of posited is that when you have someone that is relatively new to aviation, they recently completed their training and now they're moving into a flying role, flying for work, that one of the benefits of being so new is that you can kind of almost mold them, that you can really sort of reinforce the values of the company and the core tenets of how that role is done. And as opposed to, as you say, say, coming with maybe not like a bad habit, but something that is maybe ingrained that you might need to work, you might need to work out that you get to sort of show up fresh and moldable. I guess malleable is the right word. Yeah, very malleable, very innocent and wide-eyed. Now, just from like a more technical perspective, what suggestions would you have for someone moving from a multi-twin trainer to the Twin Otter? Know that the most relaxing part of your day will be flying and everything else will be the hard part. Also, something that's like 
very specific to the twin otters that we don't have an autopilot or any kind of flight director or VNAV or anything fancy. It's really just you flying the plane physically, which is very much going back to the basics of flying a Cessna or any other training plane because none of the work is going to be done for you. Something that anyone going on the Twin Otter absolutely needs to have ingrained in their mind, though, is max power, pitch full fine, flaps 10. And it'll all make sense later. Now, we touched on some of the more rewarding aspects of your flying, but what are some of the more challenging parts of flying throughout Nunavik? <laughs> the crosswinds. <laughs> I have never seen crosswinds like they are up north. It's a different kind of wind. It's not the same air, I don't think, that passes up through there. Because I have never worked so hard in my life to land a plane as I have in Nunavik. My muscles are sore after some of these landings, fighting with the plane to get it to stay on a, an even slope before hitting the ground. You might have thought that I would say cold, but truly... It is colder down south than it is up north. Just because it is so wet and humid down here, it gets to your bones and makes you feel ill. But when it's below minus 25, it's all the same. Minus 40, minus 50 feels like X. Doesn't matter. It's dry and it's fine. But yeah, definitely wins. Oh my goodness. Is there a particular destination you go to that is just sort of not a guarantee to be a challenge, but is kind of well known that it's going to be a bit of a fight to get that plane down. Salowit. And that is if you are even allowed to go there. Salowit is a wreck every time. It's either that you check ahead of time and it's a mess over there or you check ahead of time. It's fine. And once you get there, it's a mess. It's one or the other. <laughs> um, the craziest winds and snow and temperature and blizzards always hit Salowit in a certain kind of way. Hmm. And I feel like even Melissa mentions that Salo, it was like the, <sighs> the one destination that's like, for whatever reason, it's always a challenge. It's just unreal. Another thing that is challenging up north in the winter is the long nights. And I wouldn't even say so much because of the deficit of light, but more because there are so many more illusions that can happen in the dark. We all know how tough it is to land with a wet windshield, but a wet windshield when it's dark outside is cursed. And it is so common in the winter because it is so often dark. Because, like, yeah. down here, you don't do night flights all the time. You do night flights at night. But, like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but up there, like, all of my hours this winter were night flights because I did them in the winter. You know, it's, it's just like that. Now, in addition to sort of, I guess, like the challenge of the weather and just the, it's, it's not so much the deficit of light, it's rather the presence of dark that can be a bit of a challenge as well. Is there a particular destination that you go to that for you is the be all end all? It's, it's just gorgeous. You really enjoy it. It's, and I guess sort of what is your favorite destination and why? One of my favorite definitely has to be Ivoivik because there is the most beautiful view taking off from runway 07. The cliffs that you have a view of with the color of the water, you could convince me that I'm in the Caribbean. 
yet it is the most mild temperature with the smallest village and the sweetest people. I gotta say Ibuivik is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? I'm gonna give a very obvious answer, but it is the truest answer. And that is Melissa Haney. Melissa Haney was my mentor throughout my training and my private and commercial and multi and IFR and the whole shebang. And she is still someone that I know I can call and ask for advice. She is also someone who I look up to as a person and not just as a pilot. She is overall a fantastic person. And yeah, Melissa Haney is a, an aviation superstar. Everyone knows that. I, I have to agree with you there. She, she is an absolute rock star, but what I think makes Melissa so, so endearing is that she doesn't know that she's a rock star. She's just Melissa and she's so accessible, so w- willing to share her experiences and volunteer her time. Like I, it's, I agree, even just outside of being a pilot, she, as a person is just someone that you, you aspire to be like, she's, she's so easy to want to be just like when you grow up. Absolutely. She is, she's a really well-rounded person and very kind. And very funny. (laughs) Yeah. Now we talked about how, or rather you just mentioned that Melissa was a mentor for you throughout your flight training and continuing on to today. How do you think having her as a mentor impacted your aviation career? I think I got lucky having her as a mentor for a lot of reasons, but it was nice to have someone who wasn't focused on your outside appearance or even your absolutely, yeah, she she wasn't hyper-focused on how I did on paper or how productive I was. She was focused on my commitment to finishing my training. And that was enough for her. And although I didn't do poorly in school, I really appreciated not having my value attached to a number or my name or what I looked like and just how much I actually wanted to put work in. And that was really important because a lot of people are often focused on the fact that I am a girl or that I am in a, or that I got a certain score on a test, but none of that was what drove me. What drove me is wanting to fly a plane. And I think that's what's important. No, and I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have different mentors. And I think when, I think the, the making of a great mentor is someone that can see you holistically. They don't just sort of see, I want this specific job or I work for this company right now, but they can sort of take stock of who you are as a person and can sort of focus on ultimately what's the healthiest, happiest option for you, as opposed to just, okay, I need you to be this productive. Or if you want a, then you must do all these other things and not necessarily focusing on it. And in terms of the lens of like full failure, if you don't, but rather just trying to take stock of you as an individual who has all these different things happening in their life It is the marking of a great mentor to be able to want to see your success because that's you being a healthy, happy person. I completely agree. How do you think aviation would have gone, at least your flight training, had you not had a mentor, let alone one as great as Melissa? 
my drive to graduate might have been just barely enough, but there's this sense of reassurance that I wouldn't have had if it weren't for having a mentor. It can be very lonely sometimes because mm. as much as there are other students studying the same thing as you, it is a one man show at the end of the day. And it is you and your instructor or just you in the plane and nobody else. And having someone to talk to about that is really important, I think, because it can feel very isolating at times to go through a training that is so one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I, I don't know how I would have gotten through aviation had it not been for mentors and networking in the community. It's, it's, although we sort of focus on flight training as kind of a single player sport, it doesn't need to be, it is a team sport and it becomes so much easier when there are people that are around you and that are willing to help you and support you, even though it, it still, it just comes down to you in the end, but it's much easier if there's people encouraging you along the way. And there's something about training specifically that, that is so isolating because even if you have an instructor with you, you are expected to perform every task on your own. Whereas in real life, generally, that is not how it goes. You have a partner sitting next to you, either on your left or on your right, and you're working together and you have different roles that you play and you complete each other. And it is a lot less stressful to work in a team with someone. And your pilot training is a time in your life, a rare time in your life, that you will actually have to work completely alone. And that can be really scary sometimes. Now, kind of on the same vein of talking about taking a holistic approach, we can take a bit of a holistic approach to who is Dorothy in her life. I mean, we mentioned that you initially went to school for music. How did that all come to be? Music was always a huge part of my life. It started off with uh, me insisting that I be sung to sleep. <laughs> and then I loved singing and sang in harmony with my father and my friends. And then I started piano lessons. And when I was 12, I learned to play acoustic guitar. And in high school, I played trumpet. And then After all of that, my father encouraged me to continue to pursue music because it was something that he saw that I was good at and that I liked. And so I went to Seja, to Vanier College, and studied jazz voice for two and a half years. And as much as I still love music and it's still a huge part of my life, I don't want music as a career. Mm -hmm. No, and I mean, we don't, I mean, we can be very direct. You are an accomplished singer. You've done a lot of wonderful things as a singer. So I can see how eventually, I guess, rather you had to sort of make a, a kind of a game time decision of, do I want to do the thing that for me is a pleasure? It's a joy. It's a source of happiness in my life. Do I want to make that my full-time reality or do I leave it as something that is an area of my life where I just want to be happy? And that's just it, because now I get to keep music as a hobby and as a pastime 
that is fun for me and I have no due dates and deadlines or obligations towards music. And just yesterday, I procrastinated several things by playing two and a half hours of piano. So it's still something that brings a lot of peace to me. And I don't know if that would have been possible if I had made it my job. No, exactly that, that you're almost able to enjoy it more by having it be a part of your life as opposed to your whole life. Absolutely. So in addition to music and singing, what are some other activities you enjoy doing outside of aviation? Ukrainian Scouts was always a really big part of my life as well. And as part of that, the outdoors and camping and hiking and canoeing and swimming. And those will always stay a part of my life. And so will Ukrainian Scouts. Um, Through Scouts, not only have I been able to learn how to camp, but learn how to travel. And I'm eternally grateful to, to my life in Ukrainian Scouts for many things that it gave me in my life today. And on, I guess for me on a more personal level, I know that you and I both have Ukrainian ancestry and I still have you on the hook to take me to a Ukrainian festival. <laughs> Absolutely. The second COVID is over, Laura, that is We're where going. we will be. Yeah. <laughs> no, I look forward to finally, I guess, indulging in that part of my own heritage. And you seem like the perfect person to help guide me through, uh, I guess, a beginner Ukrainian festival. Now, what advice would you have for someone considering a career in aviation? Be prepared to be a lifelong student. There is no point, and this is advice I should have taken from myself a few months ago, because I have a few exams coming up now that I am not nearly as prepared as I could have been for if I had just taken this advice. Not only do you never stop learning as a pilot, but there are always new things being introduced into aviation both through instruments to entire planes. And you have to be ready to study whatever is thrown into the aviation world. And it's not like the day you graduate from your pilot training, it's over, said and done, throw in the towel. It's not like that. Like you will, as Melissa likes to say a lot of the time, when you graduate from your pilot training, that is a license to learn. And she could not be more right about that. It absolutely is. You never, ever stop finding out new information and having to study for the next test. And the other thing is, no matter what plane you fly, you do a proficiency check on it every year. And you have to at least study for that. So it never stops. No, and I think similarly to the idea of like a license to learn, The way that I've had it explained to me is that just by getting to the point of being a commercial multi-IFR pilot, that is the price of admission to get to play the pilot game. That that just shows that you have a baseline knowledge that allows you to get into that realm. It's a hundred percent so much more to learn. You are you are just getting started. You do all this work thinking I've made it. You have just basically given yourself a ticket to go and learn. A hundred percent. It, I couldn't have said it better myself. That is completely accurate. You know next to nothing when you finish your training. And you don't know that, but everyone else does. And so then when you <laughs> break into the industry, and go, why is there still so much more to learn? Everyone else just says like, <laughs> congratulations. You realize it, it never stops. You just got to keep on going. 
Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? There are so many to choose from, but I have to tell you one that happened most recently. And I realize that this is a privilege that I have specifically because I work up north. But I was somewhere between Pavonatuk and Kujurapik on my way to pick up a patient for a medevac. And we see northern lights often, both on the ground and in the air. But this specific northern lights show was unreal and unlike anything I've ever seen before. They were dancing and playing around in the sky and the bottoms of them were purple, though they were majoritarily green, like pointy needles pointing up towards the sky and they were beautiful. So that's gotta be one of, the, one of my favorite memories flying so far. Though there are many, many others, both things that I see in, in nature and animals that I, that I catch a glimpse of and the interactions I have with the people I fly as well. You know, we've touched on this, this idea of tranquility throughout the episode, but really you just make flying throughout Nunavik just sound so delightful and inviting. I, I look forward to any opportunity I have to do it. You, you've sold me. I've also sold some of my friends. They can't wait to go up north and uh, see Northern Lights several of them have never had that opportunity and even though they won't be pilots they can't wait to to see colors in the sky and I I have to say that it it is as cool as it sounds I guess there just has to be some primal human thing that connects us that doesn't matter how many times you've seen them or if you've never seen them before that if we see the northern lights there is just sort of I guess this this in this moment of pause and awe it never gets old. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? My name is Dorothy Andrusiak on Facebook and on Instagram, it's dot underscore and underscore Inuk. And I post some fun flying pics sometimes. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Dorothy Andrusiak, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.